we thank you that you, you care enough for us, that you consider the, the desperate state of our lives. Lord, that even when we turned our back upon you, said we wanted to live things our own way. We wanted to not acknowledge our creator and, and live under his rule, even though everything you provided for us was for our good and was loving. That you cared enough, even when our sins separated from you and actually made us by nature hostile enemies, deserving of your wrath, that you sent your son Jesus Christ into the struggles of this world for the very set purpose that he might die our death, the death we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against you, that you would provide the way that we can be restored in a relationship with our creator and know eternal life. And as we ponder the events of the Exodus, where we see how you have rescued people from a hopeless situation, Lord, we know, even though this is something of describing events from three and a half thousand years ago, they are very relevant to every single one of us today. And as we ponder them, may your good purposes in, in, in writing these things be achieved within us as we respond to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I know a couple of you are heading down to Brisbane this weekend for uh, Paul Tripp's doing a number of different things at, at QTC. I know Matt and Lauren at least are going to the, the marriage-related ser- seminars on Friday night and Saturday morning. If you wanted to go, bad luck, it's, it's sold out. Um, however, I'm going to give you a little bit of marriage advice here. So if you're not married, call this premarital counselling. If you are married, call it just a bit of advice. It's not necessarily going to be covered by Paul Tripp on Friday or Saturday. Blokes, in their very nature, like to fix things. Even if you're totally inept in terms of being a handyman like me, there's something hardwired into the mechanics of blokes that when they see a problem, we start to think, how are we going to fix it? Now, I'll tell you how this plays out in my relationship with Sarah. Sarah sometimes will, will tell me about some, something that's really been troubling and it's going on in, in her day. And in the back of my mind, as soon as she starts talking about it, I'm thinking, what can I do to make this better? And sometimes the things that she's talking about are way outside of my control and way outside of my skill set. And in a moment of stupidity thinking that, I'm the man, it's my job to fix stuff, I say, well, what do you expect me to do about it? I can't fix that. At which point she says, I didn't ask you to fix it. I wasn't asking you to give me a solution. I was sharing you what's going on my day. I want you to be part of and, and know what's going on. To enter into the reality of the situation, not fix it. So husbands, future husbands, when your wife tells you something, they're not always telling you something so, you, so that you fix it. And sometimes we respond in the wrong way to the Bible. Or we ask the wrong questions. And this is a passage where we can be tempted very much to do that. Essentially, this is part two of what we covered last week. Last week, we looked from the beginning of chapter 11 uh, through to chapter 13, verse 16. Up until that, Samuel, the week before, had gone through the first nine plagues that God had given particular signs and wonders to Moses to do in Egypt so that people would know that he is the Lord. 
And in those first nine plagues, there was often times when God would use those plagues and Pharaoh would say, okay, you can go, but these are the conditions or you can only go for a short amount of time. He would change his mind, they would come back. But last week, as we looked at this 10th plague, the, the death of the firstborn, there was a finality about it, that there was never going to be a reversal. This was the great deliverance that God had promised all the way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham, that after they'd been in slavery to a foreign nation for 400 years, that God would indeed set them free. But that 10th plague we looked at last week, now it was a horrific thing. In this one night, the firstborn child of every single Egyptian family, Pharaoh included, and every single firstborn within the livestock were killed all in this one night. And we looked at, well, why were the Israelites? How did they manage to get out of this? It seems so indiscriminate. And it wasn't because they were better. Because somehow they were more pleasing in the sight of God. They did better things or they lived at a higher standard. All of us are guilty before God of of wanting to live our own way. That's what sin is. Sin isn't about specific bad things we do. They're just the, the, the visible symptoms. The problem of sin is that we do not want God to be our God. We don't want to accept that he is the one who created us, to whom we belong, that he is the ruler who has given us everything for our good. The only reason why they were spared wasn't because they achieved something better, but because God in his grace had provided a means by which they could be spared, which was the blood of the Passover lamb placed on the, the doorpost of their home, and then he would avoid those houses. So it was by the grace of God and his provided means and them trusting in applying the means which God had provided for them. But this ultimately looks forward to a greater salvation. We saw how John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he was the ultimate substitute. Just as the Passover land and the firstborn of the Egyptians was a substitute, a death that took place for the salvation of the Israelites. So also Jesus in his death wasn't a death that he deserved. It was a death as a substitute, a death that we deserved as the right punishment for our sin, that he died in our place, that we could know a relationship with God. But where we left last week, like Pharaoh has called upon Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night, that's how much he was in a panic. And he says, go, he uses four different words, basically, get out of here, I've had enough. All right, I can't handle all the works of your God in our country. But at the point we finished last week, they still hadn't left the geographical boundaries of Egypt. And if we've seen anything so far, Pharaoh is quite inclined to change his mind on more than a number of occasions. And today we're going to see how God completes his promises to deliver a people in a way that brings him glory. Firstly, looking from verses 17 of chapter 13 to 14, verse 4. So I've titled, My Ways and Not Your Ways. That's quoting from Isaiah 55. Pharaoh changed his mind a lot. And I think knowing that Pharaoh is very inclined to be someone who changes his mind, when he says go and he sends you out, this ideal and most perfect thing to do would be get out of there as quick as you can the most direct possible way. 
And I forgot to put a map into the slides, but the most direct possible way was to head up north, go along the coastline, straight up into the, into the promised land. Those who have taken the time to do the calculations would say it would be less than two weeks if they took the most direct way, they'd be there in less than two weeks. But instead of God leading the Israelites by the quickest way, and the quickest way isn't always necessarily the best way, and it's not always God's way, he sends them east towards the Red Sea. Now, the, the reason that is given in the, in the verses we have in front of us is that he didn't take them via the north because if, he feared that if they saw the Philistines and the need to have to battle against them, they might be discouraged and decide it's better to go back to Egypt. Which in one sense doesn't make a great deal of sense because you only have to go forward to chapter 17 where they do go into battle against the Malachites and they do win. I think a better answer as to why God sends them on this way, which seems from a human perspective and a military perspective to make no sense, is for this answer that we see in verse 4 of chapter 14, 17 and 18, that this would bring glory to God. That by taking a means that by human and military standpoint was ridiculous, putting them up against the Red Sea where they were therefore vulnerable if if Pharaoh was to change his mind and come against them, that it would bring glory to God to save them from a position from which, from a human perspective and a military perspective, there was absolutely no hope. But how does God get glory? By leading them effectively to a dead end? How does that tell of his majesty? Because he allows them to be in a place when where he saves them is without any shadow of a doubt that is through the power and the means of God alone that they are saved. Because if you're going to save from a human perspective, going to the Red Sea, if Pharaoh changes his mind, which he's quite inclined to do, if they come, then you're guaranteed a certain and imminent death. But some of God's greatest victories actually come from a place that looks very, very foolish. The Bible is not backwards in coming, making the connection between the Exodus and God's saving work there and the work of Jesus Christ. And from a human perspective, Jesus dying on a cross as being the means to the ultimate victory over sin and death looks foolish. That's how Paul speaks about it to the Corinthians. says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. But regardless of of the perceived foolishness of the direction which God was taking them, people went. People went where God led them. And not only did they go, Joseph's bones came along for the trip as well. That seems like a bit of an odd thing, doesn't it? Oh, better take Joseph's bones while we're going on. They must be doing all right. They have 400 years of Joseph's bones. But the reason why they've done that goes back to Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 to 26, which is the final uh, verses of the book of Genesis, where Joseph on his deathbed, who trusts that God had promised that he was going to deliver them out of this land, says, I know this is going to happen. So when it does, take my bones with you, that they may go in and experience the thing that which God had promised. But why would people trust God's directions? 
Why would people trust God's directions when they knew the quickest and easiest way is up this way? Why would they trust a God who was leading them up against, effectively, a dead end? I think the best answer to that is in verses 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. They could visibly and tangibly see every step of the way the presence of God with them. And even though where he was taking them from a human perspective didn't make sense, they knew God was there with them. I know I've made this point many times and I will make it again. The best place for any human being to be is not defined by our distance from trouble and hardship. The best place for any human being to be is in the presence of God, even if that is in the context of circumstances that are hard and difficult. Nearness to God is our safest place to be, regardless of our physical and external circumstances. Have you ever thought about that? No matter where you are, in God's presence is the best place to be. Now, when you've heard really bad news, when things aren't going well at, well at work, when everything seems to be working against you, if you are there enjoying the presence of God, you can say, this is the best place I could be. If I got a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, I could say, this is the best place I could be if I'm in near, close walk with Jesus. Because just like the Israelites, if God brings them to a hard place, it is both for their good and for his glory. But it's quite a majestic sign of his presence, isn't it? You know, to see in there the, the pillar, the, the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. And while there's always people who are kind of suss and go, oh, I don't believe this miraculous stuff, you know, it might have just happened to look like a, a cloud was there. You need to remember, this this went with them for 40 years in the wilderness, so it's not just like, oh yeah, there's a kind of cloud, it feels like it's following me. And it was a very tangible sign of his presence. And both significant symbols as well, that make pretty much together the bookends of the book of Exodus. Remember, we go back to chapter 3, how did God first reveal himself to Moses? In the fire of the burning bush. How do we see at the very end of the book of Exodus in chapter 40, the cloud that hovered over the tabernacle as God's presence came into the tabernacle? And they would see this wherever they went. They could see very tangibly that God's presence was there with them. That he never left them. And while we don't have that same spectacular thing of seeing a cloud go everywhere we go or a pillar of fire... Some of us might be inclined to think, if only I had that, that would change the way I lived on a daily basis. You want to know something? When you believed the promised Holy Spirit came into you as a guarantee of the hope of your salvation, the very fullness of the Holy Spirit lives in every single one of you and is with you every single place you go. So whether you've got a a cloud or a fire, everything that they had available, you have available. You need to trust that God's presence is with you always. Jesus promised it. His own reputation depends upon it. 
But despite this awesome sign of God's presence with them, they still struggle to trust, as do we very often. So I've labelled verses 5 to 14 quite blatantly, shut up and trust God. Becomes a familiar story, Pharaoh changes his mind. Look at verses 5 and 6. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we've done, that we've let the people of Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them. That's a big turnaround, isn't it? Last week, he was so desperate to get rid of them, he calls on Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and sells them in four different ways. Get out of here. Go. And now that he hears that they've fled, he's like, what have we done? Is he kind of just a little bit delusional? Like some people really struggle with this verse. How do we deal with it? Like he's one minute, he's like, get out of here. Now he's not sure what we've done. I mean, yes, he has lost his, his massive workforce. Some have even questioned whether or not when Moses came before Pharaoh and says, may we go away for three days that we might sacrifice to our God, is it now thinking, oh, three days are gone, they didn't come back? But we also saw it was an ancient idiom, that idea of going away for a three-day journey actually meant to go away, never to come, never to come back. Why the turnaround? Well, the simple answer is this was the plan of God. This was the plan of God for the Israel, for the Egyptians to chase after the Israelites, to chase after the Israelites who were headed towards a dead end that it might display something in the glory of God who saves his people from an impossible situation from human standpoint. As they are pursued by Pharaoh, his army, the chariots, from a human perspective, there's no way out. It's certain death, certain destruction. It's beyond the accomplishment of any of the Israelites. And that's precisely the way it needs to be. As God seeks to save in such a way that will bring glory to himself. But after the Egyptians overtook them and encamped them, how do the Israelites respond? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here they are with the very real tangible presence of God with them who was, they've seen all of his miraculous works in Egypt, all of the ten plagues, including just very recently the death of the firstborn of every single one in Egypt, both of the people and of the livestock. He's, he's sent them out of the land and now the very first sign of trouble, they're worried. They're scared as though God somehow can't look after this situation. Have they learnt anything? Do they know anything about who their God is and what he's capable of? Now initially it thinks, oh great, finally they've learnt the lesson. They've cried out to the Lord so often they've gone to the wrong places. This time they've cried out to God. But it doesn't seem to be a trusting crying out to God, trusting that he's going to help them. It seems to be one of those desperate, it's like, God help me because I don't know what else to do. And almost like they're giving him a five second time limit. Oh, we've cried out to God, that didn't work. Let's go to Moses, see if Moses has got something better going on. So they turned to Moses saying, 
Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've sent us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is it is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I don't. I feel particularly sorry for Moses. Remember back in chapters 3 and 4, he didn't even want this gig to be the guy to lead them out. So he didn't want, want the particular role and every step along the way, the people are complaining against him, aren't they? And it's not just up until now, you'll see right through the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, people continue to complain about him and his leadership and, the, and doing the things that God has called them to do. And it's not minor complaints, is it? It's like they're saying, you've brought us out here to die. What you've done is going to kill us. We told you before when we were back in Egypt, we were, leave us alone, we're happy to stay here. Well, the Bible doesn't record those words, but um, so they might be exaggerating or they may have said something along those lines. But what a silly conclusion they come to at the end there. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 400 years, they've been treated ruthlessly like slaves. God is bringing them out of that, and at the first sign of trouble, I think, I'd rather go back to that. Who would seriously love to be treated ruthlessly as slave from the moment they are born to the moment they die? But this cry of hopelessness also has a positive role in the narrative in the sense that it shows, even from the perspective of the Israelites, their position was hopeless. They had nothing that they could do to get them out of the predicament they were in. They couldn't save themselves. But Moses doesn't stand down. Moses sees the exact same thing that the rest of the people do. He sees that they're here up against the Red Sea, that all of Pharaoh's armies, the chariots, are coming towards them. Yet despite what he sees, he trusts what God had promised. He trusted that God had promised that he was going to deliver them. And exactly what he does is to remind the people of the same thing, that they have every reason to be confident in the Lord. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you seem today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. So you've got three positives there at the beginning, and that's not supposed to be crossed out. This program just does that sometimes. It's supposed to be an underline. Three positive things. Fear not. How often do we see that come up in the Bible? Fear not, because God knows our natural inclination often is, is to fear. Stand firm and see the salvation. There's no maybes about this. Fear not. There's nothing to be scared about. Stand firm, this salvation is coming. Watch, see, see what God's going to do. Don't fear, God's got it covered. Now our New Testament writers used the example of the exodus from Egypt as a picture of the greater salvation Jesus Christ offers. But one thing you can be assured of, whether it be delivering a people out of the slavery to the Egyptians, or whether it's people coming out of our natural slavery to, to our sin, to Satan and to death, Satan's not real impressed. And while he doesn't have the authority to undo the work of God 
or the power and the ability to do undo the work of God, he wants to limit and hinder the work of God in your life. So how often it is you see someone who's a new Christian, they're all excited, and then something comes up in their life, and for a brief moment, their first thought is, I was better off beforehand. I'm, I was just going to go back, I'm, I'm going to let go of this, this isn't any good. Even as mature Christians, sometimes this, these thoughts come into our mind. When we realise that sometimes living the Christian life gets tough. We sometimes make the mistake of talking about our younger days of our life, of doing everything that was pleasing in our sight as being the glory days, forgetting exactly what it was like and forgetting the fact that at some point we came to the conclusion that we're such a hopeless position that we desperately needed the saving work of God. And Paul gives the advice to us as Christians as to what do we do in response to Satan's attacks to try and cause us to, to go backwards or undo what, or to cause us to look back is exactly these types of words, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 6, the armour of God says, Therefore put on the whole armour of God and having done all, stand firm. But to go back to that last section I have underlined here in verse 14, the Lord will fight with you and you only have to be silent. It's not an encouragement of, yep, don't worry, it's all going to be happening, you just be, you just be quiet and just watch it happen. He's effectively saying, God's going to do it, shut up. You've been giving us all these reasons to go, ooh, God's not going to do it. Stop saying your silly, untrusted, foolish things. Close your mouth. God's going to do it. This is a certainty. Whenever we're not trusting God at his word, the things that we say, the things that come out of our mouth, won't always be beneficial for those around us. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, is a primary example. When he questioned and he doubted, what happened? He was struck mute until such point that that child was born and he says, his name is John, and he trusted God at his word. So God's ways are not our ways. We need to shut up and trust God. And lastly, verses 15 to 31, how God is glorified in both salvation and in judgment. God quickly addresses the complaint, even though he addresses it at Moses. People think, that's a bit unfair. Why is is God picking on Moses? Uh, He's a representative of the people who have cried out to the Lord. But he instructs them to take the people and to go forward. You can imagine what the people are thinking, the ones who are always so worried that everything's going to turn out bad. They're probably thinking, oh, great. Go for it. Here we are at the Red Sea. Go for it. Why not? Let's just die in the Red Sea and make it easy for the Egyptians. Last thing we want to do is have to work up a sweat digging holes to put our bodies in. But it's not just people who are on the move. God's on the move. We see a change here. God, who has been in the cloud and the pillar of fire, leading the people from the front, moves to behind them. And puts himself in a position between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And even though, for whatever reason, there's, there's a pause that all night, this is the situation, it says, and no one came near the other. Throughout the entirety of the night, here's the enemy who want to pursue and overtake the Israelites. They're within line of sight. But in the presence of God is in between the two. One cannot come towards the other. 
And while we're not given reasoning behind what's going on here, but I think there's a sense in which the Israelites are learning to trust that God's presence with them is enough, despite what they see around them. Then just as God commanded, Moses raises his staff over the sea, he uses the wind, part the waters, and Israel crosses on dry land. Once again, whenever there's anything miraculous, there's no lack of sceptics and people coming up with the explanations as to how things happened. Whether they want to take the angle of, oh, I know, it just happened to be a, a massive big weather event, maybe a tornado kind of split things open. But if it did that, do you think the bottom of a seabed is just instantly going to be dry that they might walk across? Yes, God could have even just parted without there being a wind. But he's showing that he is the one who is the creator and the sustainer of all of his creation and he can use his creation for his good purposes and for his glory. There's a story about a very sceptical preacher who was preaching through this passage about how God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea and an old man there stands up and says, Amen, what a, mir- what a miracle, hallelujah. And the preacher responds, there's nothing miraculous here. It was merely just a higher point of the Red Sea. It was during low tide. They were just going through a little bit of a a boggy little bit of mud to go to the other side. To which the old man says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. What a miracle. God managed to drown all of the Israelites in their chariots in ankle deep mud. But what was once a dry seabed, we see as the, the Egyptians come in, their chariots begin to get bogged in mud. And they understand that it is God fighting against them. They say, let's flee. The Lord of the, of the Israelites is fighting against us, the one who they've seen do all these signs and wonders in their land. But God commands Moses once again, raise the staff and the waters which were parted once again return. Just like the The plague of the firstborn, indiscriminate. Every single person, every single horse, every single chariot is destroyed completely. The Israelites see the Egyptians dead on the shore and we see a massive reversal from what we would normally expect. The one who looked to be the weak, the one who looked to be the weak and vulnerable, the Israelites, were saved completely. The ones that looked all powerful, the Egyptians, were destroyed completely. And both of those two acts bring glory to a God. And by bringing glory to God, I mean, shows us something of who our God is, is a spectacle of, of his attributes, shows us the wonder of, who, of his nature in both his saving and in his judging. Now, we naturally think automatically that, yeah, it brings glory to God when he saves a people. But remember how God spoke of these events back in verses 17 and 18. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Both his saving and his judging bring glory to God. They reveal something of his beautiful and wonderful nature. They display who he is. They display both the extent that he is a God who is gracious and desires a people to be saved. 
But it also shows that he's a God who is holy and just, who is good in all that he is. And if he is to be good in the way in which he claims to be good, he must be opposed to that which is evil. Remember, remember the Egyptians? The ones who wanted all the firstborn Israelites killed? The one who are now trying to overtake God's people? The one who their leader basically saw himself as being God in opposition to the true God? They deserved it. It was a sign of God's goodness. He must judge. But at the same time, we need to recall the Israelites deserved it too. The Israelites only escaped and were only saved not because they were good, because they'd kept a list of rules. They were saved because of the grace of God and trusting in the means that God had provided for them. Just as Exodus points us to Jesus and his salvation, there's also a connection to the final judgment in which God is glorified in both the completion of the salvation of those who are his and also in his judging work. And for every single one of us, there is no middle ground. Jesus was very clear. Some go to eternal life, some go to eternal punishment. Both he describes as eternal, no in-between. As we come to an application, we always think, well, what do we do? What is this, what is this Bible passage calling us to do? And sometimes this is a place where people make mistakes and they ask the wrong questions. Like you hear a sermon, it's like, well, what, what's your Red Sea experience? We know when you've come to a dead end and, and what's God, what is God providing to get you through the Red Sea? That misses the point completely. To go back to my conversations with Sarah, where I'm reminded I'm not being asked to do something. I'm being, ta- I'm asked to, to enter into the reality that's being described. To take it all in. If anything, this passage shows us that God's people could do nothing. They recognise that. You know, they said, weren't there any graves back in Egypt? We're going to die here. It's, it's what's naturally going to happen. There's no other option, they thought. You don't have to be in the school of preachers to get this bit of advice. But the main point of a Bible passage, if you are preaching, is the main point of the passage. What you apply is you apply whatever is the main point of the passage. And the main point of this passage isn't about what we do, it's about what God has done to save a people from a condition, from a position where they were unable to save themselves. The Israelites, as they stood on the edge of the Red Sea, were facing certain death and they knew it. But God had promised to save, but if it was going to happen, it depended entirely on God doing the saving and providing the means. But at the same time, while you often you can overemphasize that side and say oh, it's, it's all God and is all God, but you need to trust in and we are given responsibility to walk in what he's provided for us. You know, there's big waves of, of the Red Sea on either side. They had to walk through that, despite the fact that it, their mind thinks, this doesn't work. You don't walk through seas like that. He provided the salvation. He provided the means but we are called and held responsible to walk in the means which God has provided for us. 
When Moses said, stand firm today, you will see the salvation of God, it wasn't that he was an optimist, as though he's like, ah, Egypt's from Egypt, it'll all work out all right. He saw the same thing the rest of his peers saw, and they panicked. But he trusted that God said he would deliver, that he would save, and that he was able to do that saving, that he would provide a way. And the saving act of God three and a half thousand years ago points forward to an even greater salvation in Jesus Christ. That wasn't just a salvation from a particular ethnic group. And it wasn't just a salvation from one land of slavery to a, to a foreign ruler, to a different piece of land. We're told in Romans that, that death is the natural path that all of us are heading towards. That the wages of sin is death and the death has entered into mankind, inherited to every single person born into this world, according to Romans 5, through Adam and his first sin. On the banks of the Red Sea, the Israelites were facing complete and utter destruction unless God were to intervene. Likewise, all of us, the Bible tells us, we are by nature children of wrath. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our situation is hopeless unless God has done something. And the good news is, God has done something. 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross, Jesus dies a death. Not just because he's old and it had to happen to everybody. But he died a death. He said he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. He came to give his life and he understood that his death was intended to be a substitute. His death was our death. The death that was the punishment that all of us were heading towards. Yet he died that death in our place. But it doesn't finish there. He was raised on the third day. That shows that God approved and accepted his sacrifice as being a perfect substitute for us. That actually has got power over sin and death that he has promised to us. That he has the ability to raise us to go to be with him on that last day. So for those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, this passage we're looking at doesn't say, what do I do? It reminds us of what he has done. But if you have never come to trust in the salvation that Jesus Christ has offered, then there we are. We find ourselves just like the Israelites, in a position where we're like standing on the edge of the Red Sea. Enemy against us, no sign of hope at all. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. And in that situation where all you can do is cry out and depend upon the mercy of God. And God has provided for that deepest need of every single one of us. He has sent Jesus Christ and by repenting that is to to not only to say you're sorry but to turn. You've gone from a point where where you haven't lived in a way honouring him as your rightful ruler in God. Saying, sorry that I haven't given you the honour and glory you deserve. I want to turn and do the right thing by you, but I need you to deal with my sin that has separated me from you. And Jesus has died that death. And as we are called to trust in him, just as the Israelites walk through the water, 
So we are told in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, just as we received Jesus Christ as Lord, in other words, the same extent in which we entrusted him in our entirety for, to him to do our saving work on our daily basis, we live in complete dependence upon him. So it's a time to reflect upon the salvation he has done that we do so desperately needed. Or it's a time to, to realise that I'm in a position where my greatest need has not been met. I am in a position where I'm heading to death. Do I accept what God has provided for me in Jesus Christ? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to provide for us when we had no hope, when we had no means by which we could make ourselves right in your sight, that we were by nature children of wrath. Because God, you are a good God. And because you're a good God, we must expect of you that you will judge evil. And so what you've done for us in Christ, you haven't just forgotten or just gone all soft and forgiven our sin but the full punishment due to our sin has been has been meted out but it's been meted out on Jesus Christ and not on us Lord help us to feel and know the gravity of what it is you've saved us from and the great price you pay to secure us our salvation but also allow us to feel the full gravity of the importance of this good news for every single human being in this world. That it is, this is the power of God for salvation in the gospel. That people by nature are headed to death and destruction. Yet you tell us repeatedly in the scriptures you have no delight in the death of the wicked because you know what is what must happen. Yet you are provided so that we don't have to know your wrath and your punishment. That we may know not only forgiveness of sins in this life, but a close relationship with you in this life and the completion of everything you've promised when we see you face to face. And we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.